This is a Federal News Network podcast. U.S. Space Command doesn't even have a formal office to work out of, yet it's dealing with some of the most serious issues for the future of armed conflict. Federal News Network's Scott Mossioni takes us through the new command's challenges. U.S. Space Command is only two years old and has yet to reach its full operational capability, but the real and philosophical problems it needs to handle continue to multiply. Space debris, eccentric millionaires, intercontinental ballistic missiles, diplomacy, and rules of engagement are all pressing issues lining up in his portfolio. Despite the challenges, Spacecom is about three years away from being fully staffed and at total capability. Spacecom's chief, General James Dickinson, told the Senate Armed Services Committee that the command's about 45 to 50 percent staffed, with the rest of the command made up of contractors filling in for full-time service members. So we are in the process right now of building the infrastructure that we need to do the mission that I've been given today, and uh, we're we're moving in that direction. I would say uh, we are a couple, three years away from from, uh, full operational capability. It's based on uh, many things, Senator. Uh, One is personnel. The other has to do with expertise within the command, attracting the right expertise within the command, and making sure that uh, I have completely trained those processes and procedures within the command to be able to do the entire mission set that I've been given. Spacecom was formed in 2019, and it's tasked with conducting operations in, from, and to space to deter conflict, defeat aggression, and deliver space combat power for the military. That mission's proving to be more complex than ever as Russia asserts itself into Ukraine and China continues to test capabilities outside of the planet. One of Spacecom's main concerns is all the debris floating around the Earth. Since the military set up its space fence in March 2020, it's seen the amount of those objects grow at high levels. Just to give you a statistic or a feel for that, back in 2019 when the command stood up, we we tracked on a daily basis about 25,000 piece objects in space. Today, in 2022, it's almost 44,000. So we have seen, obviously, a tremendous growth in things that we have to track each and every day uh, around the globe. And and really, you know, we've seen uh, with the Newdall test, for example, back in November, how that can expand quite quickly. So the process that we use... uh, uh, today to do that is is, is done out at uh, Vandenberg Space Force Base by the 18th Spix or Space Control Identification Unit out there, and the uh, the algorithms and the C2 that they use has been upgraded. And so we we look at that each and every day in terms of how we are able to identify and work with NASA to make sure that we're able to uh, identify potential issues. Once again, that was Spacecom Commander General James Dickinson. Spacecom tracks those objects because they pose a threat to the U.S. and commercial assets in space. One high-profile example is object number 36912, which threatened the International Space Station in 2015. The object was a piece broken off from a Soviet weather satellite that was launched in 1979. It forced members of the ISS to huddle in place until the threat passed. Senator Mark Kelly, who now sits on the Senate Armed Services Committee, was on the space station during that incident. The dangers of space debris have been repeated multiple times for the ISS and other human satellites. Nothing. Looks like that's it. The green light has been given for the crew to back out of their sheltering procedures uh, and to begin the process of reopening the hatches uh, with the uh, piece of uh, Cosmos satellite debris having come and gone with no threat uh, to the International Space Station. So the sheltering exercise uh, has been uh, completed.
Uh, with due diligence and uh, in a very precautionary and conservative fashion, uh, the six crew members of the International Space Station were directed uh, to uh, shelter uh, in their respective Soyuz vehicles for a short period of time this morning. Uh, but everything went uh, by the book, and uh, as expected, uh, the small piece of Cosmos satellite debris passed the International Space Station without incident. That was a NASA live feed from 2011 after satellite debris safely passed by the International Space Station. The military is looking into ways it can clean up the increasingly congested area outside the Earth's atmosphere. Leaders of the Space Force's Rapid Capabilities Office and Space and Missiles Systems Center are hunting for solutions by working with industry. However, tracking the increasing number of objects in space is just one of the more cogent missions for Spacecom. Other areas have a theoretical bent to them, like how weapons will be used in space and what are the agreed-upon uses of them. Dickinson said the command and the Defense Department are working through things like creating international norms for space weapons. Last July, the Pentagon released its five tenets for responsible behavior in space, which Dickinson said will inform those larger policies about weapons. Those tenets include avoiding the creation of harmful interference, operating with regard to others in a professional manner, and limiting debris. Those tenets of responsible behavior, there are five of them, and I think they're very good in terms of outlining what what we would expect not only for the Department of Defense in terms of responsible behavior, but uh, for our allies and partners. And they've, we've had a lot of good discussions on that in several different forums. That was once again General Dickinson. And then another issue Spacecom is dealing with is that individual nations are not the only actors outside the atmosphere these days. Elon Musk is providing his Starlink service to Ukraine so the country can continue to have Internet access after Russia shut down some connections. Spacecom is taking into account how those actors affect the balance of power in space and what implications they may have for the United States. Dickinson said Starlink is an example of how proliferation of connections and sensors can help continuous services to the military. Spacecom's currently working on building out its architecture to link military sensors. Dickinson explained that to the Senate Armed Services Committee. We have made a lot of progress over the last two, two and a half years with identifying and incorporating uh, Sensors that we traditionally did not use for space domain awareness, missile warning, or missile defense in the global perspective. And our, uh, our goal is to link these sensors together from a terrestrial perspective and brought all those terrestrial capabilities to, to bear, if you will, in terms of understanding what we see in the space domain. Uh, in addition to that, we're uh, linking our space-based assets, bringing them into a common operating picture. We still have work to be done uh, with regards to that, but we've made some uh, good good progress over the last two years, two and a half years, and uh, we're working towards that to, to the ultimate piece where we have one operating picture that has those sensors fused into it. Scott Massioni, Federal News Network. Check out Scott's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? 
So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have 
ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, You know, there are not a lot of us. Um, You know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then Let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.